0: Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on January the 15th, 2013. And for newcomers, I suggest you do make good use of the website CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. If you plod through that, you'll start to understand the system you're born into. Your parents were born into the same system, a complete system and your grandparents, too, who have been under a form of occupation or takeover for an awful long time. And the average person doesn't know it, and they're given all kinds of uh, alternative reasons as to why we're in the mess we're in. But, of course, uh, agencies and organizations blossomed at their turn in the 20th century and came out openly with their big agendas, including the Royal Institute for International Affairs and Council on Foreign Relations, same, same group, actually, who put branches in every country and they claim they've been putting prime ministers and presidents in uh, for over 100 years now to all countries across the world. To bring about this global society which they themselves would rule, it wasn't just to make a nice happy planet where we we'll all smile and share our, our chocolates or whatever. It's because the big boys want to bring in a scientifically created society where they'd have a very obedient population and compliant population who would work, pay taxes, and do what they were told. And at the same time, the big boys wanted to eventually uh, even create new kinds of humans uh, that would serve them better towards the end. And that's all been touted today through all the scientific magazines, if you go through them. So a big long-term plan. Uh, and we're used, every every um, generation is used towards this, this plan and furthered. We help further their goals for them. We work their, their ideas into existence for them by complying. And, uh, and as I say, it's not to be a pleasant world at all. Uh, They blame all of you for using their resources, you see, because these boys at the top, uh, naturally being survivors, want to make sure that they and their offspring, and their offspring to come, we off into the future, will have lots uh, of of things to work on and work with, uh, natural supplies and so on, and uh, resources. And unfortunately, you see, we are now classed as surplus by them, especially the Western countries, which have uh, fought all the wars for them to bring this global world about, the society about. And also we've helped plunder the planet for the big corporations that that rule us. Uh, It's all part of the big club at the top. And academia is all on board with them too. So you're not getting the truth out of academia. They're part of keeping you dumbed down, stupid, and giving you fake histories and even a fake reality in a sense too. So you got to figure it out for yourself. It's a hard thing to do, so help yourself at CuttingThroughTheMeteries.com. You'll start to find out how it's done. And remember, too, you are the audience who bring me to you. You can help me keep going by buying the books and discs at com or donating, hopefully. And these austere times. And from the US to Canada, remember, you can use personal checks and international postal money orders, too, from the post office. Uh, to Canada, and you can also send cash or use PayPal across the world, Western Union Monogram, and PayPal once again. And as I say, we don't have nice times ahead of us at all. Uh, We've been planned to go into austerity for a long, long time. Uh, Back in the 1970s, for instance, the Club of Rome came out openly in one of their big books and talked about uh, bringing austerity in a post-consumerist society, they called it, where your extra cash that you normally spend for things you might want or like, but go to paying basic expenses for energy and utilities and rents and and everything else, mortgages. So we're well on the path there, and everything's going as planned. The The bank crash itself was planned long before it came down, all the top bankers got together. They've admitted that and had many, many meetings over years. And they knew they were too big to fail, that the public would bail them out. They had all their boys in politics anyway to make sure that happened. And um, they lost nothing at all, whatsoever. And it helped also bring down the power of the countries, the taxpayers, who were then left with the big bills. Because all that money to pay off the bankers was borrowed money. And uh, he had music coming in, so we'll be back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix and uh, it's, it's quite the matrix indeed because most of, of course are completely stupefied when they find out what's been going on in reality as opposed to what they've been told by the news. When they find out the reasons for things, the reasons for the wars abroad, who's behind it, who benefits from it, who pays for it and who runs the world basically. And uh, it truly is quite a journey. And most folk really can freak out when you start to understand what's happening. And I tell them, don't freak out whatever you do. Don't go crazy because you're getting downloaded with information that you're starting to understand. And don't try to alienate yourself from those around you by becoming a kind of preacher, almost an evangelist, and you're evangelizing to your your, your parents or your family because you'll, you'll lose them all. You, lose them all. you have to find people who are already asking questions and then you don't overdose them with, with your information because you will alienate yourself down the road. And it can be quite unsafe these days too in certain instances. So start to share your your information wisely with those who are really asking the questions. Don't bother with people you're trying to convert uh, because it's, it's in, you understand social indoctrination is a science. And it works with most people. It works perfectly with most people. When you go into the history of education, for instance, you find that good uh, big philosophers like Jack C. Lull talks about indoctrination and former brainwashing. And he says it's essential The elites all know this, and they've always known this. It's essential that you must get the young first at school for the the initial indoctrination. If you don't get that initial indoctrination, then their adult indoctrination, which is continuous, won't take on them. It won't work. So it's very important they're given their fake history. They're taught not to to reason things out of school, just parrot what they're told and get little gold stars and be accepted by the group. And that's what the push in schools now is group thinking. And uh, and then you all have group decisions and come to consensus. They don't like people who stand up and say, I don't, I don't go along with that. That's nonsense. Uh, they want everyone to be in conformity with the rest. They stand a School standardizes you, you understand. So much so that people will grow up in some countries, especially the U.S., and never question, never question, the news—they really believe that what puts, comes across the news is somehow from government and it's by government, but it's not. It's private, private uh, industries—the whole news industry—and uh, they have their own goals. Believe you me, uh, an, an essential part—if you want to go into any country and dominate it—is to make sure you gradually take over all culture industry. You must take over all education, and you must take over all the media. And then you convince the public gradually that you're somehow part of their their reasoning uh, mechanisms. That's what um, Brzezinski said in one of his own books. He says that shortly the public will be unable to reason for themselves and they'll expect the media to do their thinking and reasoning for them. And when my parents uh, were around, uh, my grandparents, uh, they didn't trust the media at all in a place like Britain because they all knew the history of the media in Britain and elsewhere. It's all owned by private companies that have their own agendas. And they really do have their own agendas, believe you me. So the public's been taught to forget that because the TV is a permanent part of their daily life. and uh, And they laugh and they weep depending on what they're being shown, and they also sit and get indoctrinated by their media downloads for the news every day. So it's a scientific indoctrination It works awfully, awfully well. So if you're trying to wake up people like that, you're wasting your time. You know, it's to end up having arguments with them. So the world's changing fast because we're coming to the end of a stage. And you've to understand that when the Royal chief for International Affairs set up, their offices in the early 1900s or 20th century, they, 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 they under the authority of the Queen, so they're a private company but authorized with royalty behind them, uh, they, they would decide uh, who would get elected to Parliament. They vet everybody who gets in. They do the same thing with their branch in the U.S., the Council on Foreign Relations. The Council on Foreign Relations also runs your media. Every, every top media personage is a, per, a member of the CFR, Rolling of International Affairs. Every single one of them. Uh, every reporter Would love to have them asked to to join because that's a real leg up uh, the ladder if you're asked to join these organizations. You can't apply for it, you have to be asked. And then once you're asked, you go along with everything they tell you. Doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, you you do what you're told and they'll look after you. So remember, culture has been taken over. Your, Your media is completely controlled. And your government is as well. It's all working together towards an aim which is not for the public whatsoever. The member Karl Marx came out in the 1800s with uh, the three-block plan, trading blocks for the world uh, that would be under a super-government, he called it. But it would start with free trade uh, between countries that that then form blocks, and eventually they'd have the European block that would expand all the way through to Russia and beyond. And that's happening today. They also wanted the, an America, the United Americas to be followed secondly. And that's still on the go yet, too. We're integrating. And the, so much so that the, the U.S., NSA, and the CIA and all the rest of it shares all their data on their citizens with Canada and vice versa. And we also have treaties on all kinds of uh, import tariffs and so on and so on. And they share the loot on that as well. And then you also have the Far East Pacific Rim region and the Asian country, countries that were to form the third bloc, and that's under underway now too. Uh, China has to be the big uh, major domo of that one, and that was arranged an awful long time ago. The, now, the public and you know, all of these things are never consulted because, you see, you, you have no democracy. The, democracy is not standing up for the rights of LGBT or whatever else it is. That's not democracy at all. Democracy is supposedly when the will of the majority of the people uh, have been asked what their will is and you're never asked what your will is. And the reason is partly because those who are socially indoctrinated and culturally indoctrinated with their, with their, their scientific indoctrination take it for granted that, that uh, the other people will, will do all the voting for them and they will uh, stand up and complain for them. And that's not participatory democracy. Democracy is supposedly when you uh, participate yourself and, um, and get involved. So we don't have any kind of democracy We, we have this simply leaders chosen for an agenda By big organisations In a pyramid type structure And it's across the whole world They have every country on board with it Don't think for a minute that China is completely independent here Because the West created China We funded China into existence We signed the World Trade Organisation We gave them all of these free trade deals And then we also paid for all the factories that were here in Canada, the States, Britain elsewhere to uplift all their stuff and move over to China. We paid for the moving. And we also trained all all the engineers that China didn't have for the new factories. We trained them for 30 years prior to this, before they even had places to go back to and work in. in Canada. We trained them in universities, Britain, States and elsewhere too. So this is how far in advance big plans work, you see and we're just simply living through it we're we're taught by the media that things just happen spontaneously and crisis after crisis happens nothing is further from the truth it's all planned out in 10 year plans 50 year plans, 100 year plans and more just like they do at the United Nations and just like they did in the Soviet regime with their their 5, 10, 50, 100 year plans because it's the same boys who started up all of these organisations at the top now Today, as, as the system's getting integrated, and with the whole NAFTA deal, North American Free Trade Agreements, and integration, we're still paying a lot of countries in, in Latin America right now uh, in order to have a lot of forests cleared just to plant the big agribusinesses, and some of them haven't even fully joined it yet. We were paying for it. We've been paying it since the late 80s, by the way, for the big uh, five agribusinesses to have places in Chile, etc., as well the food's going to come from in the future. And, uh, and the public the public are totally ignorant of what's really been going on, where their money's going to. We're still building hospitals in China, even though China's making billionaires, more billionaires than any country in the world right now, through the free trade, free trade deals. And they can pollute as long as they want to. And they don't have to reciprocate with their any kind of tariffs at all or free trade uh, into their country. Because they're allowed tariffs on importing into their country. And if they say that they're not making enough money uh, at the end of the 15 years, they can reapply and have it stamped for another 15 years. This can go on forever. Same with India and all the so-called emerging countries that we are all funding as we go down the tubes. This is a great plan, the great work, you see. Now, part of the NAFTA deal, too, uh, was it brought in all the Caribbean countries. And one of the exceptions, uh, the, the, the countries that wanting to bring in, too, was Cuba. But Cuba supposedly was run by the communist system but they're changing that gradually now now it's time and they're starting now with the the Cuban uh, changing in migration policies the new major provisions of Cuba's uh, migration policy allows Cubans who obtain their passports to travel as long as they have an entry visa from the country they intend to visit and a ticket and eliminates the need for an exit visa and letter of invitation increases time the Cubans may stay outside the country from 11 months to 24 months without losing their status as residents of Cuba as previously, Cubans were given permission to visit for only 30 days, after which they had to pay a fee for each additional month extension up to 11 months. Allows those younger than 18 to leave the country with the notarised authorisation of parents or legal representatives. Allows Cubans who've emigrated to visit the island for a period of up to 90 days, 60 more than currently allowed allows those who were previously barred from returning, such as those who left for humanitarian reasons, rafters and athletes, and professionals who left their teams or posts on official trips abroad to return, and those who escaped through the U.S. Navy base in Guantanamo will still be banned for defense and national security reasons, and allows those who left Cuba illegally after the 1994 migration accord with the U.S. to return as long as eight years have passed since their departures, and so on and so on. So that's gradually being changed. as as everything gets all ready for the complete integration of the Americas and the surrounding islands and so on. That's what it's all about. What was that, a 60-year plan there? Back with more after this break. folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the Matrix. And talking about the Council on Foreign Relations, Royal Institute of International Affairs, they were working since the 1920s to bring about, uh, as I say, the Asian bloc countries as I say, in the Far East. And they had many front organisations, but it was definitely them behind it. In fact, their main historian, Carl Quigley, uh, has that in the Anglo-American establishment. An excellent book you've got to read to give you all the fill-ins of the histories which they omit in regular books. Because there is a, an alternative history here. And it says here, in a region largely bereft of regional organizations, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations has been the most significant multilateral group in Asia for the past 45 years. Since its inception in 1967, well, you'll find out that they were planning this, as I say, in the 1920s in the CFR. Since Asian has largely achieved its initial purpose for preventing Southeast Asia from further outbreaks of war following the Indochina wars, and has accomplished several notable achievements in the economic and non-proliferation realms. Yet Asian today lacks woefully behind its full potential. Unlike other regional institutions, and so they call them the CFR's regional institutions, ASEAN does not maintain a peacekeeping force and have the authority to enforce human rights or possess a formal mechanism for conflict resolution. Most Western leaders and even many of Southeastern Asia's top officials do not consider the organization capable of handling serious economic or security challenges, including disputes in the South China Sea. And it gives you a link here in this International Institutions and Global Governance Programme, this is from the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Working paper, Joshua Kurlandzik analyzes the major obstacles facing ASEAN today and prescribes recommendations for both U.S. and ASEAN that will enable ASEAN to firmly establish itself as the essential regional organization in Asia. Now, as I say, the CFR went further and inserted Carl Quigley when he said that eventually uh, they would raise China up to be a power uh, down the roads, and, and uh, in fact, the CFR and Royal Institute of International Affairs had uh, groups working from Australia. In fact, I mean, the top people they were working for this integration, and eventually they'll be swallowed up by it too. So I'll put this link up tonight, and also too, an address that was given in 1992 by President Jack Delors to the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London, since September. 1992, the European community and the new world order and it's quite an interesting speech because back in 92 he laid out the whole integration strategy for for, uh, for Europe, as I say it's much older the whole idea is much older, Marx mentioned it and uh, they've been working on it steadily since with the big bankers on top because you see at the top of the Royal Institute of international affairs, uh, including them themselves, the top boys uh, it was started by world bankers you understand, money, moneylenders who were world moneylenders. And, um, it's still the same today. And the whole world was run by the power of the purse. Some of said, said so anyway. Then their sons took over and they also fomented revolutions across the world too to expand the British Empire. And then they were to use the British Empire as a template, basically, and use those countries to expand further as they handed power over to the U.S. to take up the cost of it all, And and, uh, because Britain was going to get run dry by losing men, and the cost was going to be phenomenal, and that certainly happened. But the U.S. was given the task of taking over, and even Kipling talked about it too, and came over and gave a speech to the U.S. Senate to hand, hand the flag over to you, all of that kind of stuff and uh, the u s has been the 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 whipping boy ever since for getting it all done, but i 'm not finished with it yet so I'll put this link up tonight by Jack Dolores at the Royal issue of International Affairs, telling you about what was to come, and also this one here. Uh, to do with uh, Canada's native chiefs are in disarray apparently they're, they're trying to get uh, some land rights back because the government's pushing for for lands rights and there's big money involved as well and there's a lot of corporations want to get in their lands as well so I'll put this link up tonight they're, they're supposed to be meeting the Prime Minister and hammering out their ideas but the, the Indians at least have a long memory of uh, deception so we'll see how this goes now, in Pakistan, that's been a thorn in the side of this order for a long, long time, another Muslim country primarily, uh, and the Muslim countries all have to become uh, basically um, secular administrations. That's the that's prime of, again, the CFR, a prime command of the CFR, to try and get secular administrations in. uh or at least to say secular, but it'll be from a particular people who will end up running them. But it says here, court orders arrest of Pakistani Prime Minister amid mass protests. So there's, they've got a, a good colour revolution going there. And it says, Pakistan is plunging in a leadership crisis as hundreds of thousands demonstrate against corruption. The country's high court has ordered the arrest of Prime Minister Ashraf and the populist cleric Tahir al-Qudri has declared a revolution. And the streets of Pakistan were packed Tuesday when hundreds of thousands of demonstrators joined the protest called by Mohammed Tahir al-Qadri, a self-proclaimed revolutionary leader, and lead it was to be his day of revolution. He likely wasn't expecting help from the country's highest court. Well, they took time to work that and it doesn't just happen like that. But in the middle of the march, the news suddenly broke that the court had ordered the arrest of the Pakistani Prime Minister, Raja Rivera's Ashraf, on suspicion of corruption and nepotism. The demonstrators cheered widely when they heard the developments. Uh, mind you, it'd Be Mason for the West took some lessons from that too, and got rid of some of the corruption in your own countries. What <laughs> uh, would cheer this kind of thing for others? The order issued by the Islamabad-based court came following the hearings in a corruption case in which Ashraf, who has been Prime Minister since last June, stands accused of having received bribes in connection with an energy project during his stint as Prime Minister of Water and Power from 2008 to 2011. He bought property in London with the cash they claim. Back with more after this. listening to the republic broadcasting network because you can handle the truth hi folks i'm alan watt we're going through the big changes of course were planned before we were born and we're living through them like a script that's all it is life is a script and everything that's happening today was planned long before you were born, including the wars, too. E- even uh, the 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 lineup of the wars, who would be first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and so on, planned long before you were born. But, as I said, getting back to creating the three-block trading uh, system uh, for the world under a super-parliament idea, that was to start with the, the blocks, make it a super-parliament, and then you simply make them subsidiaries of the main one, a world government. But members of the European parliaments in Brussels cost three times more than the members of parliament in Westminster and London. Shocking new figures reveal Why is it shocking? I don't know. The annual bill for a member of the European parliament is almost £1.8 million, compared to £590,000 for politicians in the House of Commons. And that's too much even for the ones in the home. Anyway, it says David Cameron has repeatedly demanded cuts in the running costs of the entire euro project and so on. And you're in the parliaments so and having three different homes, it says the, Euro- it's the Eurocrats themselves, that call these members of parliaments Eurocrats, they say it's like comparing apples and oranges because they need three homes apparently, you see. And the last time that um, uh, Cameron complained, which is all the show and theatre for the public, because he's all for this whole thing, that's why he was chosen, not by the public Last uh, year, the Prime Minister was dumbfounded to discover that during a summit at which member states refused to impose reductions on EU spending, the leaders were having some sort of do, and they were quaffing £120 uh, bottles of wine. But that's standard stuff. But it says, um, they've got three homes anyway, they'd like to have three homes, and they live like kings and all that kind of stuff. The old kind of stuff that we're kind of used to. Uh, it's like ancient Rome and in other countries too. And this article too is from the Council on Foreign Relations. You've got to read their stuff and, and take, take a look at who writes the stuff. It's awfully interesting. You'll get a lot from it. And it says about the Global Governance Monitor and it says, but they've got Global Governance Monitor. See how it's all going. You see all the foundations that they have with thousands of armies of NGOs working towards this. And they've got think tanks galore drafting up treaties and the next treaties and the third and fourth, fifth, sixth treaties down the road for integration. See how they're all doing. And so this this, uh, monitor is uh, one of their papers, you see. From the CFR. And it says, the challenge of global governance has never been more imperative and more daunting to realize. The headlines are filled with transnational challenges from terrorism to climate change to weapons of mass destruction. Well, they they always see it's all done by fear and hype and nonsense. It says, to foster better understanding of modern global challenges, the international community's record in responding to them, the International Institutions and Global Governance Program has launched the Global Governance Monitor. The guide's nine components assess the human rights, non-proliferation, finance, that's a very important one for these boys, oceans governance, taking over control of the oceans too, climate change to control all of us, conflict prevention, public health, which is really as as basic as you can possibly get it done to, and transnational crime and counter-terrorism regimes. All the reasons that they say that we must have global government, you see. And it must be their one, because after all, these are the guys who will be working towards it all by themselves. With incredible unlimited financing. So I'll put this link up tonight to Global Governance Monitor. They actually have a Council of Councils. This is the head of the pyramid managing all this integration for the world. And this is another one too. The new global health agenda. Did you know that? It was not just Obamacare. You know, you're to pay for the world's health now. And uh, this is um, also from the CFR. Uh, you think, you think your governments run things? No, they don't. And this comes with a PDF, and it gives an overview as well. The overview says, The field of global health is witnessing a shift from focus from disease-driven initiatives to projects aimed at increasing the sustainability and strengthening of health systems. A crucial component to this is universal health coverage. Yeah, that's universal health coverage, which seeks to address financing schemes for health, separate from efforts to provide both adequate numbers of health workers and structures for health care delivery. Now they're talking about the West paying for all, of course. The UHC may be provided by government or through a combination of private insurance schemes, public sector planning, and employer-based programs. Countries across the world, from China and India to Rwanda and Mexico, are beginning to implement different universal health coverage schemes, making marking a rise in interest and political will for universal health coverage. In the new global health agenda, universal health coverage, this is one of their PDFs, authors uh, Oren uh, Hubin, Daniel Altman, Laurie Garrett and Vicky Hausman and Yan Huang discuss the rise in support for universal health coverage and the financial benefits that may be reaped by implementing such schemes and you understand if you get through all the hoopla it's all about a universal common health coverage that will all pay for to some one big insurance company at the top probably be under, under Goldman Sachs or something and we'll pay for the whole world you see isn't that wonderful? Were you asked about that? Of course you weren't. I also put up tonight again another Global Trends. that came out in 2030. I put up again. I've put up it before. It's a publication of the National Intelligence Council. It's called Alternative Worlds. And they go into what they plan and predict for the future. And uh, you can take what you want from it. And also there's uh, a few PDFs I can put up tonight too to do with Drafting guidance for the Office of Parliament in, in Britain as for all British Commonwealth countries, mind you And it goes through the bill formats It's got PDS for the whole bunch And it's got the, the one at the bottom, Crown application Because everything passed in Parliament in the British uh, democracy Has to go through the Queen, you see And she can either say yea or nay And this Article 2 is to do with fraud and it's by Christopher Monckton. It says, The truth is out. No amount of hand-wringing or numerical uh, prestidigitation, it says, on the part of the usual suspects can any longer conceal from the world the fact that global warming has been statistically indistinguishable from zero for at least 18 years. And the wretched models, all these supercomputer models, did not predict that. When I told the December 2012 UN Climate Summit in Doha that there had been no warming for at least 16 years, the furious delegates howled me down. It's it's a social agenda. It's a social political agenda. It's nothing to do with science. The UN later edited the videotape to remove the howling and the delegates were furious, not because I was speaking out of my turn, did not know that at the time, but because the truth was inconvenient. The Guardian carried a sneer story about my intervention when a reader sent in a politely worded comment st- to the effect that, objectively speaking, it was true that over the relevant period of the at least squares linear regression trend on the Hadley CIU global surface temperature data was as near flat as makes no statistical difference within two minutes. The Guardian deleted the comment from its misleadingly titled comment is free website. The determined reader resubmitted the comment This time it was gone in 45 seconds. You understand, it's a big agenda. The Guardian, of course, is in on it too. They want all... uh, We've had cabinet members in Parliament in Canada who have come out and said that it doesn't matter if it's all bogus science, it'll help redistribute wealth across the world to bring more equality. That's part of it. It's not getting to the people. It's it's for big corporations, for the world government idea. That's what it's for. And it's also to manage all your lives as well. Well, you can't do this, you can't do that. You do what you're told. The more government bureaucracies and, and agencies and so on. Since the Met Office, and as what's up with that, revealed recently, has noticeably downshifted its lurid warming predictions for the rest of this decade. And it says that um, when I predicted the barbecue summer... Uh, when it predicted a barbecue summer, which was wrong, the summer was exceptionally cold and wet. And then a record warm winter, wrong. This was the second coldest December in Central Europe since the records began in 1659. And then the spring, a record dry summer for the UK, wrong again. 2012 proved to be the second wettest on record. Not for nothing, it's now known as the wet office instead of the Met office. It trumpeted its predictions of impending global warming-driven climate disaster from the rooftops. And the scientifically illiterate politicians threw money at it, your money at it. If the Met Office's new prediction is right by 2017, the global warming rate will have been statistically indistinguishable from the zero for f- two full decades. So did the bureaucrats call a giant press conference to announce the good news? It says no. They put up their new pred- uh, prediction on an obscure corner of their website on Christmas Day and hoped that everyone would be too full of Christmas cheer to notice. That raises again a question that Britain can no longer afford to ignore. Has the wet office committed serious fraud against taxpayers? And then he says, let's examine just one disfiguring episode. When David Rose of the Mail on Sunday wrote two pieces last year, several months apart, saying there'd been no warming for 15 years, the Met Office responded to each article with Met Office in the media's blog postings that, between them, made the following assertions. It says, Mr. Rhodes, to suggest that the latest global temperatures available show no warming in the past 15 years is entirely misleading. Number two, what is absolutely clear is that we have continued to see a trend of warming. Number three, the linear trend from August 97, in the middle of an exceptionally strong El Nino, to August 2012, coming at the tail end of a double dip in La Nino, it says, it is about 0.03 cent- centigrade a decade. Each of the top 10 warmest years have occurred in the last decade. The models exhibit large variations in the rate of warming, so such a period, such as 15 years without warming, is not unexpected. It's not uncommon in the simulations for these periods to last up to 15 years, but longer periods are unlikely. Each of these assertions enumerated above was calculated to deceive. Each assertion is a lie. It's a lie told for financial advantage, such as, Milad. let me take assertion in turn and briefly outline the evidence. Then he goes through the evidence. To knock them down again. But as I say, this argument will go on forever because it's, it's, it's an agenda. It's a top mounted agenda from the very, very top to change how we live completely, including, you know, post consumerism and, and post industrial and everything else. It's also to, to fall in with agenda 21, where you won't live on the land unless you're absolutely necessary, uh, in, in a, on a corporate farm, one of these massive corporate farms. And uh, and you will be It will actually run your whole life for you too They've already indoctrinated the children Who have no chance at all uh, Once that early, intense scientific indoctrination Of it gets into their heads uh, They'll never get out of it So they're pre- already prepared uh, for the future Through the children Which is standard Now, in Britain Of course, since everything runs on economics these days And we're economic units And we're a, new, a renewable resource Um they decided, of course, to save money by, basically, if they can't get straight euthanasia through, they'll put you in the death pathways in hospitals, where they just starve you to death, and don't give you any, any uh, fluids too, and let you die. It's much cheaper for them, you see. Because the government needs all that money to hand across the world at big corporations. And why should you be spending all on yourself, uh, trying to live a bit longer? Your, your time is over. We're all functional units, you understand. If we're not functional anymore, and we can't we can't pay the taxes, and we can't contribute to cash, 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 uh, then you're defunct. You're a bad world citizen. And the United Nations said that because their definition of a good uh, global citizen under the United Nations is a producer and consumer. If you're starting to just consume, when well, they have going to dispose of you. So they've been doing this death pathway thing and even given cash incentives to the hospitals to, to push more of it through. As see, some hospitals received six-figure sums. And the care minister announced sweeping changes to Liverpool Care Pathway. Every year, 130,000 are placed on the scheme for extermination. So hospitals will no longer be able to, to profit simply by putting dying patients on the Liverpool Care Pathway. The National Health Service Trust have raised even six fuller sums for using the controversial end of life regime, because they're still saving money, even though they're paying them big bucks to the, the hospitals for this, to get them on board with it. It's saving them a lot in medications and staff and all the rest of it. This is but care minister, how would Orwellian say care ministers, what well, care ministers? Norman Lamb said these bribes would have to stop unless it was shown suffering had been reduced. It's feared the incentives pressure doctors to use the pathway, even when a patient's life not be nearing its end. So it's going to make sure that you die, you see. This is the 21st century, and folk can't understand the nature of what's happening at all. They can't understand it, because their heads are full of propaganda. This is a Freedom of Information request show in pre university hospitals. Trust in Liverpool received £308,000 last year for achieving goals, included. Uh, in the Liverpool Care Pathway. Part of the money was tied to achieving an LCP figure of 43% against a target of 35%. So get rewarded for saving the National Health Service money. Salford Royal National Health Service Trust had LCP-linked payments halved for failing to hit targets. So they give them incentives and punishments if you don't hit your target for killing people. Mr. Lamb, who commissioned a review of the pathway, said payments should be made only if it can be demonstrated that individual patients have experienced reduced suffering as a direct result of being placed on the LCP. You know, it used to be one thing when they had some kind of morality left in the West, long, long ago actually, before TV knocked it all out of them, and life was deemed as being precious. Of course, they still had a, an aftermath of religion at that time, Christian religion is which at least had, had uh, advocated that life was a precious thing. And they used to point their fingers at countries where it wasn't so precious, but you can't do that anymore because all the countries that had some sort of uh, morality left over from Christianity are defunct now. They're atheized. I could say something else which is a bit more true, but but uh, they're, actually, they're actually going along with everything because they're, they're basically atheists now and their culture is not Christian. It's something else. And it's from another people's religion, actually. And... This article, too, is to do with, um, it says, Here's how the Obama administration defended DEA agents who put a gun to a little girl's head. And it says, The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled last week that the DEA's use of force against the 11-year-old and 14-year-old daughters of Thomas and Rosalie Avina, which included putting a gun to the youngest girl's head, was excessive, unreasonable, and constituted intentional infliction of emotional distress. Attorneys for the Obama administration defended the raid and Reason has obtained the brief from the DOJ filed to Ninth Circuit. In it, the Obama administration argues that the DEA agents' conduct was plainly reasonable under the circumstances. After subduing their parents, agents broke into the two girls' bedrooms during a wrong, a wrong door raid, right? Wrong door as usual. And luckily they never slaughtered them because usually, usually they slaughter who was inside. Uh, this was back in January 2007, but it's been held right now. The oldest of the two uh, girls dropped to the floor and was handcuffed by agents before being dragged into the living room and laid next to her mum and dad. The 11-year-old, however, was sleeping when the agents came into her room. As they began to shout to her to get on the effing ground, the girl woke up in frozen fear. Agents then dragged her from her bed to the floor and one agent handcuffed her while another aimed a gun at her head. That's standard stuff that they do everywhere now. Setting Mueller versus Mina the unanimous 2005 Supreme Court decision that established the right of law enforcement agents to detain residents during a raid for an unspecified amount of time Iris Mina and several of her tenants were handcuffed and left in a garage for three hours while federal agents ransacked her home looking for evidence to use against a suspected gang member boarding with Mina the Bama administration argued to the Ninth Circuit that the DEA agents were acting within the law when they handcuffed the entire family so it's okay now to, to put guns at children's heads. It's amazing that because Obama, okay, to be cries when, 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 when guns you know, shoot children in schools. It's strange that it's not consistent logic. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix. And I have one more story for tonight here. It's to do with um, China. China was a big experimental basis, basically for a new system uh, of uh, the, the perfect society who would obey and do what they were told. And they introduced a lot of schemes into China. Oh, offer the good of all type thing. Now they've got this massive view at the top with multi-billionaires running them, just like every other uh, country. And uh, of course, that's how it was really set up uh, a long time ago. But anyway, it says that um, it says that they were known as China's little emperors, the offspring of the one-child families born after the country's draconian family planning policy was introduced in 1979. they became the spoiled generation of teenagers who didn't experience the joys and heartache of sibling rivalry or share and share alike. At least it was, this was a simplistic stereotype of the singleton children born in modern China, based on little more than an anecdote and hearsay. But was scientists have produced the first convincing evidence to suggest that the one-child generation of China has indeed become a rather maladjusted lot. The one-child policy came about after rapid growth in the Chinese population of the 50s and 60s, and it was strictly enforced in urban areas, with reports of forced abortions and sterilizations, as well as heavy financial and social penalties for those who dared to transgress the one-child law. That, by the way, uh, is the model state for. By the United Nations, have said openly that China's policies are the are the model for the world. For those who haven't quite got it yet. Anyway, it says. The Chinese authorities claim the policy was a great success, preventing more than all these births and so on. It says, however, more than 30 years after it began, and unintended consequences emerged has fundamentally changed the psychology of young Chinese men and women, scientists say. Chinese uh, children born after the policy have grown up to become less altruistic and trusting, more timid, less competitive, more pessimistic and less conscientious than the Chinese who were born just before the policy they claimed. The study has broken new ground by analyzing the attitudes of young Chinese adults using games designed by economists to test behavior and intentions, such as whether the subjects are likely to share something with a stranger or ready to trust someone they don't know. They have the same game three games uh, that they do in America and elsewhere too. When the scientists compared the two age groups born a few years before the policy was introduced with two age groups, After, they were surprised to find such marked differences in the kind of personality traits which influence social relationships that could have important ramifications for China's future. We find quite large impacts. Those who were the only children as a result of the policy are considerably less trusting, less trustworthy, uh, more risk-averse, less competitive, more pessimistic, less conscientious, and possibly also more neurotic. Sounds like the West, doesn't it? Said Lisa Cameron of Monash University in Melbourne. Australia, these behavioural impacts could have economic consequences in addition to more obvious social implications. For instance, we find that those born under the policy are less likely to be employed in risky occupations such as self-employment, freelancing or the financial sector. It may be that the one-child policy generation will be less entrepreneurial. That's perfect for the mass factory system. That's where they'll sit there and be depressed forever, you see. It's perfect. And what they don't mention here is that they they did allow uh, more than one child uh, for the Upper class in China, he's paid a lot of fee, you see, and because they're really, tr- tr- truly into eugenics, it's a eugenics world, it's all run by eugenics, and they actually uh, have more children for the Politburo's uh, families, the ones becoming the billionaires, knowing all the factories and stuff. It's a great great experiment in democracy, China, you know, communism. Mm-hmm. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your God's go with you.